Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, as we reach for our Bibles, um, we just ask that your Spirit will teach us through the living and powerful Word of God. We're so grateful for your great provision in Christ for our salvation. We recognize uh, that we come up lacking, that we're a people easily distracted and easily defeated. And so thank you for the great work of grace that you do, both in providing salvation and then the ongoing work of sanctification as you conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our great Savior. It's in his name that we've gathered and that we pray and that we preach. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is not very often that uh, midweek or midstream I alter my preaching plans. And even this Wednesday, my study day, um, my attention was on Matthew chapter 9, where we find ourselves preaching through Matthew. And you know we've been there a while. I trust it's been so beneficial for you. I've enjoyed it. And we're in Matthew 9. And We find it so helpful here at Fellowship Bible Church to just preach through the Word and to to let the exposition of Scripture grow us and challenge us and convict us. However, by midweek, I was struggling. I'll tell you why. Um, A couple of things that were going on that turned my heart and my mind towards another topic. And one is I've been attending graduations. I hadn't attended graduations for a couple years. And this year we have so many young people graduating from church that Janet and I attended the Faith Christian Academy uh, graduation. We attended the gatherings and uh, open houses of some of our other public high school graduates. And then yesterday our church was filled and we had a, a, a nice homeschool graduation for these young people. And it was, I just enjoyed it. I, I, it's not normal for me to enjoy a graduation. Um, <laughs> I think I was seeing it through the lens of um, our own home and the reality that our son will graduate next year and kind of processing that. And, and then I think the other thing is, is that almost all of these kids, I've watched them grow up from childhood. And it just touched my heart to see how they're developing and, and how they're growing. And I just have appreciated it. I thought Pastor Mark did an outstanding job yesterday as the commencement speaker here. Okay, so hold that thought. PV and Janet are going to graduations. So then, the big news event of the week. All right? And every lead news story all week long, every major story and every headline, every lead on my homepage was the extremely disappointing and disgusting transformation of one of my boyhood heroes. One who, at one time, I really believe it's true to say, was a national hero in the United States. And now, making headlines as he has humiliated himself in this most public and disgraceful and perverted manner. I need to say... And you need to know, in case you're pressed into the mold of the world, that what he's done in this transformation 
is not courageous. And it is not cool. And it is not commendable. It is sinful. And it is sickening because of what it does to the image of God by which he was created. But as much as his activity and behavior and decisions bother me, I um, pretty much expect to wake up every day and know that sin is going on all around the world, in every community, all the time, everywhere. In fact, I often think, I wonder what God thinks every second of every day as he completely, universally takes in, in one eternal now, all of the sin that he's observing around the world, the abuse and the brokenness and the perversion, all right there in front of him. But what really bothers me and what came together in a confluence of connection with the graduations and the graduates on my mind was less this individual and his behavior, but more how it was received in our culture. That it was acceptable, that it was elevated, that it was awarded, and that it was given premier publicity. What is wrong with a people group who will elevate perversion? It's a sinful heart. So now we connect that and intersect that with our graduates. And so what was on my mind all week was, what kind of world are these young people stepping into for their adulthood? The distortion and the reality of the brokenness of our culture and the sinfulness of it, and then the demand of our young people to step off the platform of home and family and launch, many of them, to pagan university or to camp pagan for the military or wherever their paths will take them, how are they going to do it? How are they going to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus in the middle of this messed up, broken world? And so I just wanted to bring a charge specifically to our graduates today. And I make this a charge to our church at large as well. I do hope the young people who are present today will pay particular attention And so I began to just ponder once again my man, Daniel. Ha! What a great guy. Now there's a great hero. And though the story is overly familiar, I invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. And in the few minutes that we have, and if you'll indulge me for just a few overtime minutes today, in light of the full service order, I would like the message to confront our hearts to intersect with our thinking, for us to process where we are as a nation, where we are as a church, where we are as individuals. And I particularly would like to encourage our young people, elevating Daniel as a model that indeed, indeed you can live for God regardless of your circumstances. Daniel chapter 1. Why don't we just read the chapter in its entirety? It is quite familiar, um, but it'll refresh you if you haven't read the story for a while. And we um, do not consider reading God's Word um, 
bothersome or a waste of time in any way during our message time. And so it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I'm reading from the ESV. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, little G, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God, little G. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, uh, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. And Hananiah he called Shadrach. And Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Young people, you should underline that in your Bible. If you're under 100, you're a young person. Or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. See, he had been given a directive to do a certain thing. And any disobedience of the king's directive could bring capital punishment for him. And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he, Ashpenaz, listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. The ESV translates the Hebrew there, fatter in flesh. It's just an idiom for um, healthy. They were healthier. Then all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. That word translates really um, grains. The idea is that it was probably largely grains, wheat and those kinds of products. It could, though, literally be vegetables out of the garden. As for these four youths... God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them, don't you love this phrase? He found them ten times better. Ten times better 
than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What an interesting story to launch this phenomenal book in our Old Testament from this life of this favorite character of ours, Daniel. What I'd like to do is to try to take in the context of the world in which Daniel lived. You need to understand that um, he, along with these other youths, were Bible students believe somewhere between the ages of 14 and 20, likely between the ages of 14 and 17. I wanted to point out one other thing because there's a few of you out there who love to point out detail. Um, I'm a real generalist, so it doesn't bother me much at all. But as Daniel begins, and in identifying the era in which this took place and identifying chronologically when this happened, he marks that it was the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It's possible in your study Bible or in your own study, you realize that Jeremiah described this as happening in the fourth year. Um, And so people love to point at that and say, see, I told you Bible people, you can't trust the Bible. He said three years and he said four years. What is it? And you just can't, so you use it and you can't trust your Bible anyway, can you? Well, to me, three years, four years, five years, who knows the difference? That's all in the category. That's kind of how my brain works. That stuff doesn't bother me very much. From two different writers, that's close enough. But on the other hand, we do want to be very precise and we recognize the authority of Scripture, and and it does bother us if there's a contradiction, and often skeptics use that to undermine the authority of Scripture. And so, um, perhaps the best explanation is given by Bible scholars that there's two different calendars that are being referenced, and if you put those two calendars together, then it totally makes sense what's being described, and that Daniel is most likely using the Babylonian calendar, and it would be the third year on their calendar, and from when they started their year, and that Jeremiah was using the Jewish calendar, and it would have been the fourth year for them. That makes pretty good sense. Other than that, find a big book with small print and read about it yourself. All right? But let's take in here, even in the few minutes that we have, what's going on in Daniel's world. The first thing we want to look at is what's happening nationally. Number one, what's happening nationally? You need to understand that Israel for many years now has been in a state of decay. That which was once a God-fearing nation, that which once was characterized by righteous leadership, by Men who cared about what God thought for many years has been in decay. They are now only can be described as a broken nation. You need to recognize that even before Nebuchadnezzar comes sweeping down from the north in a prophesied judgment um, on God's people for their carelessness and their sinfulness, their turning away from his righteousness, that even just a few years before, Um, one of the pharaohs from Egypt had come up and captured their king and taken him down into Egypt and ransacked the city as well. So politically, we recognize also, number two, that there is no righteous leadership. And to illustrate that point, I want us to take just a second and turn to 1 Kings, excuse me, it's 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. And what Daniel is using as introductory material describing this 
exile that he's a part of generated by Nebuchadnezzar from the north. And you need to think of Nebuchadnezzar as coming down from Babylon. And if you can picture in your mind from the news of the last couple decades in our country of Iraq and the, the city of Baghdad, that's essentially the vicinity of where ancient Babylon is located. So where Iraq is today and near the city of Baghdad is where Nebuchadnezzar had his headquarters. And it was from there that he came down from the north as an instrument of God's righteous wrath and judgment on God's very own people prophesied for years and years and years by his prophets. And what we have recorded in the, in the Kings and Chronicles in our Old Testament is just the history of Israel. And so we're literally studying a history book here, and it actually gives the account of when this happened. And I want to just read a little bit of it, and you can mark this in your Bible. It's very interesting, and you, you might find it helpful to read a little bit and compare with what Daniel's saying and kind of understand even better because of, um, the little bit we're going to say about it doesn't do justice to the incredible brokenness of the of the culture of God's people and the context in which Daniel grew up. 2 Kings 24, And in, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of Syrians and bands of Moabites and bands of Ammonites and, and uh, sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants and prophets. You see... Names like this, names like um, um, Micah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Isaiah, these men had prophesied long and loud and clearly that God was going to judge these people if they didn't straighten up. And the kings repeatedly, not only did they not listen to them, not only did they not change their ways, but they killed the prophets. And one of the things that God said through the voice of these prophets that are familiar names to us is that when judgment came from Nebuchadnezzar, they were not to fight back against the judgment. They were to surrender to it, that it was part of their judgment. He didn't want them to fight. And so when it says there that he rebelled against him, then what God did was he raised up all these other city-states around him and they came sweeping in to rape and to pillage and to kill and to destroy furthering their judgment by that very act of disobedience of not just surrendering underneath Nebuchadnezzar where he would leave an Israelite king in some level of authority to manage this conquered territory. But as we've already read in Daniel chapter 1, he stripped the temple of many of the utensils of worship and took them and used them in his own temples of their foreign gods. So this is the context Nationally, politically, number three, spiritually. That's also spiritually. I'm, I'm melding these together for time's sake. And notice what it says back in 2 Kings 24 and verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh. He was an earlier king whose sons are serving in wickedness according to all that he had done. And also, look at this, verse 4, 2 Kings 24. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon in other words, God had had enough. And their sins had filled up his sin tank. 
And his grace tank was filled and it was over in his time frame to implement the universal spiritual law that always works, that always will work, and always has worked, and is still in existence, held back only by the blood of Christ on us, is that the wages of sin is always death. Period. That's it. And Manasseh was so wicked that he was used as a standard by the kings to follow, some of whom were his sons, several of whom were his sons. And it says things like, let your eyes go down to verse 8, for example, that when he was removed, um, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And then verse 9, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done, talking about Manasseh. And if you go back a few pages, you'll read about the horrific things that he did. And even if you turn back to chapter 21 and let your eyes go to verse 6 of 2 Kings 21, 6, talking about Manasseh and his filthy, broken, corrupt reign. And it says in verse 6, and he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Back to Daniel chapter 1. This is the world in which Daniel is growing up. It's the only world he's known. Nationally, they are losing their identity. They are no longer a proud nation. They are no longer a righteous nation. Politically, they have no leadership with any kind of backbone. They have leadership that refuses to turn its face towards God. In fact, their leadership under Manasseh, as you just read, has turned them into pagan worship. And they stand up and they say, we no longer are a nation that follows one God. Spiritually speaking, we see that... that it's gotten to a point and in Daniel chapter 1 where Nebuchadnezzar even comes in and desecrates their temple and takes their utensils, as we've already said. Morally, number four, morally, we see that it's described that the guilt that's on their head is largely due to these kings and these leaders who are worthless men and are godless men allowing innocent blood to flow in their streets. Do you know of another nation that might have at one point been shocked at innocent blood, whose streets flow with innocent blood? It's a scary thought. Bible students say, because the Bible doesn't say exactly what he means in 2 Kings 24, what he means by this innocent blood, but it probably includes, number one, child sacrifice, because that's described by Manasseh himself as leading the way as the king and say, yeah, I'll offer my son to Molech as an infant son and they burn it right there in the scalding brass hands of the idol Moloch. Another thing that they did was they slaughtered the prophets and that's innocent blood. God sent a mouthpiece to them. Listen, young people, listen. If somebody ever enters your world with a voice of righteousness with a word that lines up with God's word. I'm not talking about some wacko prophet. I'm talking about somebody who is God-fearing and loves Jesus Christ and comes to you and confronts you when you're out there on the edge. Do not reject them. When God sends a voice your way, listen, or you will reap a greater judgment. That's what's happening. And these prophets came and they proclaimed and called out for repentance and they were slaughtered in the streets and their blood ran in the curbs of the city on the sidewalks. Micah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all slaughtered. Jewish and Christian tradition says 
that he took the great prophet Isaiah, whose book we have in our Old Testament, stuffed him in a hollow log and set him up on sawhorses and sawed him in half with a cross-cut saw. That's how they handle God's people. But what I'd like to wind down with is, number five, what's happening in Daniel's life personally? We see nationally, politically, spiritually, morally. But where's Daniel personally in all of this? Well, first of all, I want you to see that he's far from his family. Number one, he's, his family is unavailable. His family is far away. He's been uprooted and he's taken into exile. He's seen disastrous events happen where they've smashed in the buildings, they've uprooted things, and they've captured him and taken him far away up into Iraq, up into Babylon. And so this is the story of a young man who is far from home. We have some young people who know nothing but home for almost all of their educational years. And some of you are going to travel far from home and you're going to be outside of the framework of the influence of your family, physically speaking. That was Daniel. I want you to see that not only was his family unavailable, but his faith was being undermined. Number two, his faith was being undermined. So they were taken up there and they were entered into a program of re-indoctrination. And they were in a very controlled environment. And even what they were given to eat was being controlled. And I want you to see that in a most personal way, they attacked his faith. And they did that by changing his name. It doesn't pop out of the passage, but when you understand what they're doing here, when they, when they give him a new name and they give the other three buddies, a new name, they are doing nothing other than attacking everything their parents taught them, everything they were taught in, the, in their temple, everything their rabbis taught them, everything their spiritual leaders poured into them. They were, they were trying to undermine their faith. Here's what I mean. Daniel means God is my judge or God has judged. So Daniel was raised in a God-fearing home, and when he was born, his mom and dad gave him a name Daniel so that every time he wrote his name on his spelling paper, and every time he heard his name called, he would remember that God is his judge. That's not bad. That I'm not floating out in this universe accountable only to myself, and that I don't get to make up my own rules, and that I'm not on my own, and I'm not the big cheese, but there is a God who created me before whom I stand accountable, and He is my judge. And there is a righteous fear of God that was embedded in the very name of Daniel. No matter where he went, he knew that God was his judge. And they named him Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar means, get this, I'm telling you this is the most emasculating name and not only do I believe that they physically emasculated Daniel as a eunuch and made him a eunuch, but I believe that even the very name they chose for him, they recognized early on that he was the leader of these guys. This is my opinion. It's not in Scripture. And they gave him a put-down name. It means, Lady, protect the king. Lady, protect the king. Hananiah... Hananiah, I think, maybe was an only child because Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Can't you see his mom and dad holding him up? And I don't know this for sure, but it seems like it could be likely that his daddy held him and, and they thanked God for finally giving them a son. And they said, 
God has been good to us today. Yahweh has been gracious. And they made his name Shadrach, and it means, I am fearful. The implication is, I am fearful of a God with a little g. I am fearful of a God. Mishael. Mishael, he has a great strong name. It means, it means, who is what God is? That is, our God, there is no God like him. And wherever he went, Mishael reminded him that there is no other God but God. And who could be like his God? And they took away his name and they named him Meshach. And it means I am despised and contemptible and humbled before my little G God. Wow. You talk about the opposite end of the God spectrum. Who could be like my God? And I am despised before my little G God. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Yahweh delivers. Abednego, they named him. It simply means the servant of Nebo. Abednego, N-E-G-O and N-E-B-O are translated the same meaning a god, a likely a Babylonian god. One of the names of, the literal name of one of their Babylonian gods. Abednego, servant of Nebo. You think they weren't out to undermine their faith? This is a very controlled, very thoughtful, very processed movement to undermine everything that they believed. Don't think for a second it's not going on today. Let me give you an example of the thoughtful process that we see of the pagan vice pressing in on our young people and on us as we seek to maintain our righteous equilibrium and a moral understanding of our world around us. I think you'll be able to get this very easily. It's a defined strategy. Righteous people who are watching society have broken down. And and here's what you get. The first step is a request for tolerance. It's a request for tolerance. Hey, hey, you're all right. I'm all right. We all sing Kumbaya, knit daisy chains. We get along just fine. Tolerance. I just request that you tolerate me. Just leave me alone. But that doesn't stay there. Secondly, what happens is there then becomes this, instead of a a request for tolerance, number two, the next step in the indoctrination process of our young people is a demand for acceptance. It's a demand for acceptance. No, don't just tolerate me, but you have to accept me the way I am. Thirdly, They begin to ratchet it down further. Not only do you just accept me, but you have to celebrate who I am or there's something wrong with you. And I think it is that you are filled with hate. And they redefine the language. Fourthly, if you're you're pressed into celebration, they want then forced participation. And if you will not participate, something is wrong with you. Till finally, it ends up in punishment to anyone who disagrees with the pagan agenda. It's not happening by chance. There is a great schemer, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness. And he has minions scattered all over, everywhere. And just like... 
Ashpenaz and Nebuchadnezzar, there will be young people, always somebody trying to change what you believe. So personally, Daniel was far from his family. He was being forced and pressed to move away from his faith. We don't have time. I'm just going to rattle off this now. So listen closely. But you do recognize that this is not only is this a story about a young man far from home, but this is a story that's all about food. Do you realize that? It's a lot about the food here. And and here's my observations. The food really matters in this story. And the reason the food matters is, is because Nebuchadnezzar through Ashpenaz and his eunuchs is using it, number one, as propaganda. He's using it to influence their thinking. He's trying to conform them and mold them into Babylonian guys from Israelite young people. And he wants them to see, look, we're good. You come to our table. And through the taste buds, he's influencing their brains. Secondly, I want you to see not only is the food propaganda in this story, but the food is pagan in this story. It's a given in the story that it is a Babylonian Spread at this banquet, designed and approved by Nebuchadnezzar to be fed to these boys. And it is clearly understood by all in the context of the story, even though it doesn't pop out at us, that this food from the king's wine and his meat was all devoted to Babylonian gods and idols. And therefore to eat it was to understand and honor that these deities were the source of your food. And so to sit down and eat was a way of humbling yourself before the pagan gods that had provided the food. And thirdly, I want you to see that this food to these Jewish boys was prohibited. It was prohibited. Why? The Old Testament clearly, and they understood this, forbid a Hebrew boy to drink strong drink. That's the kind with the bubbly in it. And the... Alcohol at this table would have clearly been in the category of that which was forbidden and it was strong drink. That's why in the Israel, they watered down their wine significantly. Not only that, to sit at the table of Ashpenaz provided by Nebuchadnezzar was to sit at an unclean table. It was forbidden and prohibited in that it was made up of, I'm confident, a variety of provisions that were outlawed under ceremonial law in the Old Testament and their their civil laws. Animals that had shells that they weren't supposed to eat and birds that didn't have a crop that they weren't, and web feet that they weren't supposed to eat and lots and lots of pulled pork at the table. So for Daniel to sit down and eat was to capitulate on his very faith. I think there's an image here as well. And I'm thinking of Psalm chapter 1, the first psalm, where there's a warning there as the psalm begins. Blessed is the man who does not walk. I'm forgetting. Does not walk in the way of sinners. And then it says, and he does not stand in the presence of of these sinners. And he doesn't sit down then with the godless. And Daniel and these guys are trying to be forced to sit down with the godless in such a way that they identify with them. And this is who you are. This is us. We're remaking you for three years into who we are. And this is a better way. And Daniel speaks up with great courage and conviction. And he says, no, I don't do this. I'm Daniel. 
and God is my judge and I'm not eating your food. And I don't think Daniel was just making a suggestion to Ashpenaz that we could have this cool little contest. It says that God turned Ashpenaz's heart to look favorably upon Daniel so that he set up the contest. But I think that Daniel was as willing at this point to put his head on the line as the three friends of his were just a few chapters later when it came time to bow down to the idol and be thrown in a fiery furnace. And so Ashpenaz allows this to take place. And Daniel, through the favor of God and the wisdom of a proper diet, proves that he's ten times better. Young people, give God a chance. He'll bring you to the surface. The rest of the world is going backwards so fast that most of you young people, if you'll just stand still where you are today, you'll look like a leader. But you can grow from here. Just don't compromise your convictions. Well, we, we would look at his future. They were trying to redirect his entire future. So not only his family, his faith, his food, his future, they were trying to remake him. We've really emphasized that already. You can see it in verse 5 and other verses. How about his friends? How significant in the story are Daniel's friends? Young people capture that. He wasn't alone. How valuable is that? And ultimately, favor of God was upon him. And I've referenced that. What do we take home with us? Conclusion, application. Let me just read them to you. Number one, God is in control. Don't doubt that ever. Even when it feels like God's losing. If ever there is a picture of what it looks like for God to be in second, third, or fourth place and to be losing to the gods of the Babylonians... He's not. Look what it says in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. God was, God was manipulating the whole thing. Back in chapter 24, what we just read in 2 Kings, clearly he talks about God's control. So when you're in an environment at pagan university or boot camp paganism, don't ever think that your God is losing. He's not. And don't ever open your homepage and don't ever read a newspaper and think somehow God missed this. Because in exactly the same way, God is allowing our people and our corrupt leadership to go their own way as a source of their own judgment. The difficult part is, is that it has a residual spillover of great discomfort to God's people and God's church. Do you think Daniel enjoyed being ripped out of his neighborhood, ripped out of his home, being moved far away from his family? He did not. It was very difficult. Do you think he enjoyed being emasculated and turned into a eunuch, which is most likely? Surely that was a difficult season in his life. Who knows what God will allow to impact his church? But it doesn't mean God's losing. In fact... If ever I've seen a time where God's time clock is ticking and where the scriptures are coming alive and, the, and God's plan for the, the, the last days seem to be just unfolding with such incredible reality before our very eyes, it's today. Paul warned us regularly that this would be how it is in the last days. Secondly, young people, you better know what you believe. 
Because there will always be someone out there trying to change your mind. Do you know what you believe? What have you been doing for 17 years? Sleeping in church? Writing notes in Sunday school? Faking your devotions? And now you're going to go to Pagansville University? And you're not going to know what you believe. And it will not be near as slick as the cool kid in God's Not Dead movie. It doesn't go like that. That's a movie. That was a cool movie, but... For one thing, you'll never be able to make PowerPoints as cool as he did in the short of time as he had. <laughs> you better know what you believe before you go far from home. And thirdly, you better find three good friends who believe just like you do and hang with them no matter what. Let's pray. Father, Thank you so much for Daniel's great testimony and his faithfulness to you far from home in the midst of a most pagan, controlled, manipulated, high-pressure environment. And I just pray that you would bless our young people, Lord, to follow hard after Jesus Christ, that they would latch a hold with great conviction of the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the reality of His return, and the authority of Scripture, the depravity of our hearts, and the reality that You love us, and You provided through Your great grace a great salvation through the shed blood of Christ, and how Your grand story comes together to transform our lives. And may You help us to never, ever be ashamed of Your gospel. For it is your power at work in us for salvation. And Father, regardless of the difficulty of the day and the, the unbelievable perversity of the daily columns, would you help us to walk righteously in Christ and to live upright and godly lives in this present age, empowered by your Spirit, fueled by your Word, sustained by our godly friends. We need it. We need your help. Our young people need your help. And make our young people ten times better. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.